Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Al. And I'm Grizz. First up, we're going to be looking at The Big Lebowski 20 years after its release. How well has it dated? And earlier this week, I talked to John Cooper-Clark, the bard of Salford, the people's poet, and one of the mattiest dressers in the land. The Big Lebowski was in cinemas last month to mark 20 years after its release in 1998. Al, you're a fan of this cult classic, aren't you? A big fan, and I can't believe it. It's 20 years. It's, it's flashed by in a haze of white Russians and bowling. And two-tone shoes. <laughs> and two-tone shoes. The Big Lebowski, I think, is a is an important film insofar as I think it's influenced almost everyone I know, at least all the men I know, of roughly my age, in their sort of late 30s. It is a classic, and I think it continues to be wonderful and hilarious and enlightening in every possible way, but not everyone necessarily will agree with that. No, I mean, I, I have sat through many conversations, often with the ex-boyfriends of past, uh, sort of sitting me down and explaining The Big Lebowski well, so to After me. you've broken up, you, this is, you thrash out The Big Lebowski. No, 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 this is before breaking <laughs> okay, up. And right. Perhaps Leading up Leading to up, up to. They sit me down and they explain, this is why The Big Lebowski is so brilliant. You've got to understand this. This is very important for your education. There's a kind of cult worship and a, a religion that has built up so around that point, the Big do Lebowski. So just tell them to pack up their weed and leave, <laughs> and leave your flat? <laughs> I'm taking the bowling ball with me. <laughs> it, no, it inspires a, a level of devotion, unlike you know many other films, which is why we're talking about it now. I think the question is, though, has it, has it stood the test of time? In a word, yes. But Raph Abraham will be coming in shortly as the expert to put us straight. Raf, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back. Friend Thank of you. the pod. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Al. So I want to ask both you dudes um, if you can tell me... So for anyone who has spent the last 20 years not watching The Big Lebowski, what's it about? Well, that's a... Very good question, but even those of us who've been watching it for 20 years are still trying to work out. But <laughs> what, uh, what happens? Very loosely, it's about the dude played by Jeff Bridges, who is not the big Lebowski, mm -hmm. but is another Lebowski who uh, suddenly finds uh, his home invaded and his rug urinated on. And uh, he goes in search of the, the perpetrator and uh, gets drawn into this weird, rambling, complex story about uh, a kidnapping and a bunch of nihilists and lots of other stuff which kind of never really quite ties together as far as I can tell. No, it but does tie together. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a simple case of mistaken identity in which a guy called Jeff Lebowski is mistaken for another guy called Jeff Lebowski. 
But one Jeff Lebowski is, is in fact the dude, or El Dudorino. Mm -hmm. He's, as you say, he gets his rug wazzed on. All he wants to do for the rest of the film is to get his rug back. Or yeah. claim compensation. To get compensation for his, for his ruined rug. rug, which really held the Meanwhile, <laughs> these goons that you talk about, the rug peers, yes. are looking for the big Lebowski, whose wife owes money all over town. Right. And she her... gets kidnapped. Or does she? Or does she get kidnapped? They drink a lot of white Russians and go bowling and smoke weed. Yeah, that's basically what the dude is trying to get back to, but he keeps getting distracted by this this weird plot, which he really has nothing to do with. Okay, so now that we know what the film is about, we've got a clip to listen to. In this clip, the dude is confronting the big Lebowski about his rug. Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um... I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? Yeah. <laughs> so there he is. <laughs> there he is in all his glory. So basically, it's, that's it's it. like yeah, a conspiracy thriller that's that it. is actually not a thriller by any means. No, it's very thrilling. But I mean, you didn't think it's thrilling? It does not have the pace I don't think that's or snappiness of it's a thriller. It's a picaresque. It's a picaresque tale of. That it is. <laughs> it's a picaresque. Okay, um, so, it's, so it's a kind of portrait no. of LA and the 90s slackerdom. But what? No, it's not. Okay. Correct. It is, isn't it? It, it's it not. Is. It's a portrait of the of the 1960s being transported into the 1990s, and it's a clash of two different cultures of the the dudes 1960s occupying buildings, smoking weed, going bowling, clashing with the much less lovely 1990s with the first Iraq war, and it's the the, the clash of people who need to get a job and people who, frankly, would rather just like get to bombed. chill out. Yeah. yeah, so it's about the, the end of an era, really, isn't it? He's like the sort of last of a dying breed of these kind of hippie, aging hippie slackers who really just don't want to get involved with, you know, all this yeah, and unpleasantness he's of the modern world and just chill and bowl and smoke a doobie. <laughs> yeah. so, so what is so special about this? I mean, why are we talking about it 20 years later? There are plenty of films that portray... 1960s slash 1990s counterculture, people chilling. What, what's different about this one? Raph, I'll leave that one I to think, you. Uh, <laughs> I think what it is, is because of the, thing, the things we've talked about, that it really captures like this the end of this, this slacker era. I mean, it's made in 98, but it's actually set in 91. When it came out, it was already mm. kind of faintly nostalgic about this this dying era. I'm probably guilty of retrospective interpretation, but we're only a few a few years, you know, away from 9/11 and the, the new millennium just taking on a whole different shade. Mm. So, it's sort of a a love letter to yeah, to the end of the kind of hippie hippie era of the baby boomer, but also of the kind of generation X. 90s slacker who I'm very much who I very much identify <laughs> you are, with you, you are one of them oh strongly I mean when it came out I was 21 and a student and at the peak of slackerdom and <laughs> you know my friends and I we, we saw ourselves in this we just you know this was an aspirational film for us we were like we want to be the dude this is the guy we want to grow up to be and how okay. is that true of you yeah very much so well when I was at university all of my friends could quote the entire film 
But then, I don't know if you did this as well, but I then went the whole hog in my 20s and basically followed the dude's uh, way of life. Which is how you got, got where you are today. <laughs> I finally managed to get myself into the FT, having spent an entire decade going bowling every day. And um, Did you actually go bowling? Did you become and drinking a, white Russians. Drinking white <laughs> Russians. Did you have your own bull? I never had my own ball, but I did get good enough to... I, I have a higher score of 200. That's actually quite good. That, that is but impressive. But if you go bowling every day, like the dude... The I mean, you inevitably get good at it. The thing is, though, we never actually see him bowling, do That's we? That's true, it's and we never see John... What's-his-face? John Goodman. <laughs> yeah. Go bowling, bowling either, no. No. So we see Steve Buscemi bowling a lot. Steve Buscemi, But it's true yes. that not a lot really... It's not that not a lot happens, because actually there is this ridiculous plot in no, which no, lots so happens. Much happens. But I mean, in a sense, it's a film of kind of great lines and great dialogue, kind of funny one-liners. I mean, it's not like... I, I don't know what it's about as such. I mean, I think that uh, that was very much the point of it. So I yeah. think the Coen brothers writing it, you know, they were drawing on very vaguely on sort of Raymond Chandler-esque sort of mm. stories. And, you know, I think they were quite influenced by... The, the Long Goodbye, the Robert Altman film of the 70s, which also is this kind of useless, waster kind of mm. character. But I think famously, sort of even Raven Chandler, when Howard Hawks was making The Big Sleep, you know, phoned, phoned up Raven Chandler to try and ask, you know, what they got stuck on some plot point and they called him in the middle yeah. of the night to find out, you know, to ask him what, what the hell was actually going on. And he said, I've no damn idea why the hell are you calling me and hung up. So it's like, you know, the idea that... There's kind of a long history of noir mm. films not really, or these kind of gumshoe films, not really coming together entirely. But it doesn't matter. It's more about the it's atmosphere. The mm. So I think that's kind of what... Yeah, and what it also has a here. profound philosophical heart to it, doesn't it? Right. I mean, well, I think particularly now, because we're looking at it 20 years later, you know, the dude for president, surely, in an age of screaming on Twitter and um, awful, dreary things that we have to cope with, like Donald Trump and... Brexit and, and all this nonsense of what the world needs, I think, is Jeff Bridges think, racking up yeah. a big one and letting us live in a um, in a sort of peaceful, harmonious, witty way. No, we need to find you know the dude inside find of us. Find our inner dude. We all need. Yeah. So so far, the for you, the film has dated well. Watching it again, twenty. It's not years dated later. at all. It's it's a unique masterpiece in which um, there's not a single bad line. There's not a single bad scene. All the characters are richly and wonderfully drawn. I don't think I, I watched it the other day. I was just like, I was just back in Clover. I think I'd like to watch it on my last my last day. You um, know what though? I have okay. Over the years, I've twice watched the film with women. So I remember watching it sort of women women. Do you <laughs> remember? You know that. those creatures. So about five years after having seen really it in the cinema with my mates and being, falling in love with it, you know, I watched it with the girlfriend at the time, and you know, built built it up as this. This is one of the best films you'll ever see. It's hilarious. It's you know, it's genius. And she was thoroughly unimpressed. And then, um, but you're clearly not still with her, are you? No, I'm not. But I'm then the other day, girl, but then it? the other day, I watched it with my my wife, and who'd never seen it, you know, incredibly. And uh, she was laughing along, but at the end, she she sort of shrugged. What was the point of all of that? You know, she's Spanish. I wonder. (laughs) I wonder if it's a is it a uniquely male thing? I don't think it's a uniquely male thing. I do. I mean, I found it. So I rewatched it again this week. I found it very funny. I mean, the lines are still good. They will, I think, remain good. I think people will be watching this in in years to come. But I think it's definitely. It feels of its time. It feels dated by its limitations, I think. I mean, I just don't, I don't think that you would make this film today. I think 
the the characters are all middle-aged white men who don't seem to be particularly aware of the fact that they are or what that means whereas nowadays you couldn't make a film that doesn't have an awareness of that we have you know get out we have oceans eight with an all-female cast crazy rich asians everything now is it has an awareness of identity that the dude does not have maybe now the dude would be like terribly woke and <laughs> we'd all be impressed with that but the coen brothers couldn't make the big lebowski now no. but i think i think they're kind of they're probably as aware of that as anyone you know and the fact is we've got the big lebowski and we've got enough films kind of like it we don't really need anyone making more of those films necessarily i mean you know the coens then later on went and made no country for old men which mm. feels like you know that was really kind of end of an era stuff in a much darker darker way post you know 9-11 and all of that so i think they get that and they've you know they've they've sort of moved mm. on and acknowledged it so i don't think they probably they probably wouldn't want to make, make it, it today again. but i think no, you're no, right i, I don't think, think it would get a time i don't think any good filmmaker sets out to project their moral vision of the world i don't think that any film that, that sets out to do that could ever be a watchable film. I think that the Coen brothers, like any good filmmaker, are storytellers first and last, and that it's completely irrelevant whether the dude is aware of himself. I think he is actually much more aware of himself than he say. Like, I think he's, you know, he ta- he talks to Maud at the end about how about his life, and um, he's he's very very candid. I mean, he's he's have complete awareness of it. But it's just, it's a it's a kind of acceptance that we. That in our angst-ridden times, when being woke is deemed to be so important, that seems somehow unpalatable. But in fact, he knows exactly what he's doing, and he does it in a very warm and liberal-hearted way. I'm not saying I don't think that the dude is not liberal; that he's not um, aware of himself as a man or as a white man. But I do think the film, I mean, like Raf says, that the Coen brothers, that was there's not an awareness in the film of this as. There was still a sense that the kind of default story that we expect is of a middle-aged white man and his friends. I don't think. No, but that that, is just. I don't think that this is about necessarily art being like a battleground for social justice. There was a big piece about this in the New York Times recently, and it's definitely like an argument of our times. You know, should art be the place where we decide morality? And I don't think that it should. But at the same time, I do think that it's important to have an awareness of like privilege and what kind of positions we hold and what power we hold and there is something about this film that's like casual in its approach to all of that that's of its time that like I say now you you just wouldn't make it you wouldn't want to make it I would sell my son to make this film. Um, You'd make a version of you, it that was that was more of now, and it wouldn't yeah. be an entirely white male, almost entirely white male middle-aged cast. You wouldn't want to just remake cast. the same film over again. That just no, of exist. course not. No, because no one would want. I wouldn't do a, do a remake of the film, but you know, to come up with it in an original way. Um, yeah, but as you say, it's it's more the sort of philosophy the fact that behind it, it that, yeah, but the that fact still that it, endures. So you know, there is there is something to find in it, which you know, I think the kind of the dude is. You know, even though he, yes, he is this middle-aged white man, you know, and probably casually sort of privileged without necessarily realizing it, he's not oppressing anyone. You know, he's he's he lives, you know, on meager no, he, means. And he's All he wants is a bag of either. weed. He doesn't oppress anyone. You know, he's not a big pollutant. All right, he, he drives let a jolly old jalopy. No, he's basically a good guy. Whereas, whereas his friend Walter, played by John Goodman, who is this kind of weirdly proto alt-right guy, you know brandishing guns and you know he seems very much like a recognizable character of now but he's yeah but even he goes around like looking after his ex-wife's dog 
he's not. Yeah, because um, he's a he's, complete sort of like misogynist no, Neanderthal either. But he's like, yeah, but he, he sort of you know he plays that role, but actually you know underneath it he's he's deeply insecure, and that's well that's probably the yeah, true true for a lot of those there's times. There's like a lot of fondness that we can feel towards these characters, and you get a sense that the that the Coens are fond of these characters as well. Everyone's everyone sort of is doing the right thing and being nice to each other basically, or at least the the goodies are. But there is the Julianne Moore character. She's totally brilliant, but the kind of like icy I don't need a man like cut glass accent feminist I mean this there's no question that it's a, you know it's entirely written from a male perspective it's ma- male wish fulfillment really which I totally bought into and you know part of me still does there's no way it passes something like mm. the Bechdel test I mean not <laughs> no. even close you know so if you hold it up to those sorts of you know contemporary concerns do we still agree that the film is entertaining first of all and and still has resonance well, it, I mean, this is what I'm saying. It has resonance, but its resonance is limited. I mean, watching it as a woman is an undi- undeniably different experience than watching it as a man. Like, it's not trying to appeal to me. It's not making any... There, there isn't a character I can particularly get behind. I'm not. It's not like an only route for a woman in a film. Of course, there's like, imaginative powers that, that are beyond that. But there's a sense in which you, you can feel locked out of a film. Um, you don't identify with Bunny? <laughs> got on <all> my toes <laughs> one of the two only two named female characters yeah I mean the, you know, of the two characters one is a woman who goes missing big breasted young whatever and <laughs> pornography star the other is a an ice cool and the feminist. nihilist the nihilist who loses her toe <laughs> yeah, yeah you know, increasingly I identify with the nihilist so, so you can you can see that I mean if you imagine flipping it you would find it a different experience to watch that film if it was entirely populated by women. The thing is, yes. are we just falling yes. into the trap of now that we're talking about this film we all quite like and now we've just ended up arguing about it and, you know, as the dude says... It's a hey, podcast, that's, that's just your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I say get out the white Russians, have a roll a joint and just, just, yeah, just chill yeah. out. Have you ever made a white Russian for yourself? Yeah, I, I immediately went and bought a bottle of Kahlua after watching the well, film. Me, well, me too. Sales of Kahlua must have gone through the roof. Yeah, and it's actually incredibly difficult to drink an awful lot of white Russians in a night. Yeah, um, you, you found that too. Yeah, it's it like a it's a lot of milk. There's a lot of milk in that. The most disturbing thing of, about the film is the dude's use of powdered milk um, oh, yeah. for the white Russian. That, that is something that... That's maybe an American thing. The use of powdered it? milk generally should be it should be outlawed, shouldn't it? I mean, yeah, but even when he's doing it, you know, still even still if it's the dude, want one, still want, kind of want one. <laughs> so, Al, the punk poet John Cooper Clark, uh, what's the appeal for you? Well, the immediate appeal is that he has a new collection of poems mm-hmm. called "The Luckiest Guy Alive." This is his first collection of um, work for decades. So we were able to snare him into the studio. Indeed. John Cooper Clark has become a national treasure. Even people who may not be familiar with all of his work will be familiar with one of his, at least one of his poems, I Want to Be Yours, which is read out at almost every wedding I go to. And it, you know, it starts, you know, I, I want to be your vacuum cleaner or in. OK, I know the one. He's not just a poet, he's a performance poet. The poems are all new. There are some fantastic ones in there, including Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. But the style of verse has remained very, very constant for the past you know, 30, 40 years. He, the, it's a very snappy, insistent rhythm. They all rhyme, and they are, by turns, bizarre 
and hilarious and biting and sharp. So my dad always talks about seeing John Cooper Clark in the 80s and what he looked like, this kind of, this punky look. I mean, can you describe it for our listeners who might not have a visual? And, and has it changed? Well, I think if your dad saw him this week, um, he would recognise him exactly as he was in the 80s. He's stick thin. There's some debate as to why he is. Um, simply, he, he just doesn't eat lunch. But he also suffered from TB as a child and... He took lots of heroin. He had a lot of heroin <laughs> in the 1980s. Very, very skinny, smart, black trousers, his um, amazing boots. He was wearing sunglasses. At some point, he wore we- reading glasses as well. <laughs> he has this amazing sort of unkempt but clearly sculpted black hair and an array of very impressive gold teeth. He's, uh, it's, it's like being and in the presence of a big... hat. Indeed. It's like being in the presence of a punk star, uh, which is essentially what he still is. So he's a pretty distinctive guy. What what was he like to interview? Amazing. In lots of um, good and tricky ways. He. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, he was... listening to it from the other side of the glass, I could see that he was sometimes struggling to ask your question. Yeah, I don't think he really struggled. I, I think I think it was more that he, maybe for some of it, he was communing directly with the listeners and maybe forgot that I was there. So it did become a slightly peculiar experience where I would ask a question and then and then he just he would sort of continue on in a sort of um, free flowing way. It's also quite difficult to interview somebody who is wearing two pairs of glasses at the same time because it's very difficult to see their eyes. Those crucial non-verbal cues not available. <laughs> Indeed, but n- nevertheless, I was starstruck and he could not have been lovelier. So before we hear your interview, this is John Cooper Clark reading his poem Attack of the 50-Foot Woman from his new collection, The Luckiest Guy Alive. Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Her molecules got magnified, her faintest whisper amplified, takes the highway in her stride, she's a little on the large side. Attack at a 50-foot woman, feeling vaguely discontent with all the spleen that fits a vent, dressed in a circus tent, her irritation overspent to an almost biblical extent. Attack at a 50-foot woman, she's a radioactive predatory flirt with a figure made to disconcert, mess with her, you're gonna get hurt. Laps Catholics reconvert at sack of the 50-foot woman. Who needs some overgrown chick stomping on their block? Mad, bad, sad, sick. How's the antidote coming on, duck? Sports cars for roller skates. She straps them on whenever she's late. She's too big to appreciate. She'd be better off back in the States. She needs her own space, let's face it, at sack of the 50-foot woman. Blacking out the afternoon, she lends an air of ominous gloom. Was it something we said or a phase of the moon? Anyway, we ain't got the room. Attack at a 50-foot woman. Attack at a 50-foot woman. Please remain alert. Don't be driving down the outside lane, peeking up her tent slash skirt. Attempts to reach her only stiff, tried gold, flattery, top dollar gifts in a vain attempt to heal this rift. Still she seems a little bit miffed, attack at a 50-foot woman. What's the army doing? Nada. Totally trashed the state of Nevada, pissed all over the National Guard, attack at a 50-foot woman. 
How come nobody's seen her coming? John Cooper Clark, thank you very much for coming. My pleasure, Al. What time did you go to bed last night? Uh, 4am. That's normal, yeah? Pretty normal, yeah. What are you doing before 4am? Well, there's a new channel on the television, uh, on the Freeview uh, networks, called uh, Talking Pictures on Channel 81, uh, mainly uh, British crime films uh, from 1948 to around 1973. So, you know, real some real good stuff uh, on offer through the night. And it keeps you... So, uh, you know, that keeps me occupied. But I've always been a bit of an insomniac. But at four, you then sleep well until ten o'clock? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I sleep the sleep of the true and the just. And so you should. How do these poems come to you? Uh, well, uh, sometimes they write themselves and sometimes they're uh, very hard work. But this collection, it's, it's your first collection in... In 32 three... years, is it? So, I mean, it's it's a fantastic collection. But Thank you. It's a slim volume as well. What have you been up to? Apparently, uh, uh, it's a slim it's volume a slim for volume. 30 years. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I've got plenty more, really. But these were all written recently, or this is uh, an accumulation? Uh, uh, actually, these are very recent, mainly in any way. Uh, have been written in the last five years. And why did he decide to? Uh, well, uh, you know, time is running out. Okay. I refer you to the poem Bed Blocker Blues. Well, indeed. <laughs> time is, uh, you know, uh, time is great. Uh, so much of it, as far as as far as I'm concerned, well, the collection I don't is get morbid about it or anything. But uh, you got to leave something behind, and it's uh, really it's nothing more than it's it's an ignored area, you know. Really, I've always seen uh, doing live performances as being the most important part of uh, of what I do. Such wood, I'm sufficiently uh, healthy to be able to uh, more or less be on tour all the time. And that doesn't get wearing? No, not at all. No, I mean, no. The... As I say, it's the most inspiring part of uh, what I do. And, uh, you know, the fact that I've not had a book out for so long is just really, uh, I suppose, laziness on my part in a way. And watching crime films. Just haven't got around to it. It's called The Luckiest Guy Alive. Yeah. Some could say that you're the luckiest guy to still be alive. Plenty of people do say that, but I would just sort of leave it as the luckiest guy. I feel like the lucky. I wouldn't swap lives with anybody uh, in the world. You've had... Sight unseen. (laughs) You've had and continue to have an amazing life. Over the course of it, how do you think your poems have changed? I don't think they've actually changed very much. They've always been quite old school, you know, although my poetry concerns itself and has always concerned itself with uh, modern life at any particular spot. The style of my stuff is actually uh, quite trad, you know, 19th century style, you know. Conventional rhythm and rhyme. rhyme. T.S. Eliot was quite snobbish about rhyme, thinking that it put too much emphasis on the final word of the line. Yeah, but, you know, you could say that a haiku writer puts too much emphasis on only using... I mean, you could say that about any discipline. I agree. The point is, you know, what happens between those two rhyming words? There's a... You can encapsulate a universe there. For me, anyway, you know, rhyme helps you to kind of compress things. 
you know, because it has to finish on the on the beat. You know, that's the dynamic taken care of. Without that, I don't know what what makes something a poem if it doesn't rhyme. It, I think he's wrong. He was wrong about a lot of things, G.S. Eliot, and that's one of the things he was wrong about. <laughs> but I, was... I ain't, I ain't gonna let. I ain't gonna say that. Uh, I'm not having a go at people that write in free verse or blank verse. It's just it ain't my style and never really has been. Because I've been very influenced over the years by the great American songbook, you know, and uh, the lyrics of Johnny Mercer and Jerome Kern and Cole Porter, pre-rock and roll American pop writers, hacks, in a way. You know, I'm very interested in that sort of Tin Pan Alley aspects. And if you can incorporate that in poetry, so much the better, I think. I think that's why my poetry connects with... Ordinary people. You, you don't know. need a PhD in English no, 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 without a doubt. No, you don't. Um, I stayed up last night watching dozens of John Cooper Clark videos on YouTube. It's probably something you don't do. No, I haven't got any of that equipment. But your performance style seems to be today very recognisable to what it was in 1980 or before. Yeah, well, that's the short answer to your earlier question. Yeah, it hasn't really changed at all. Well, and likewise, perhaps your look as well. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Um, <laughs> unfortunately, our listeners... It's the best I can do, looks-wise, anyway. It's the best I can do. Damage limitation, I would call my my image. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> our, our listeners won't be able to see your image. If you could just very briefly describe what we have here. Well, I always wear, you know, uh, a jacket, a pair of trousers and a shirt. Okay. <laughs> I would describe my mode of dress as careful. Uh, well, I mean, that's one word. I mean, other words could be, you know, stylish. And, uh, Thank you very uh, much. I'll two, leave that. You're wearing uh, you a pair of sunglasses. First, you wouldn't be the first person to say <laughs> that. Thank you, but thank you very much. Much appreciated. Well, you're wearing a stylish hat. You're wearing a, a pair of sunglasses and another pair of reading glasses. Triple glazing. The, the skinny... Trousers, it's it's all there. Yeah, I have looked the same for for years. So, if the <laughs> poems, the performance, the look, you know, they've been pretty constant for thirty, forty years. Yeah, have you changed at all? I don't think so. No. I saw something that when you said that you were I can't think how that you were a bit chummier now. Is that is that correct? Maybe I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I was always chummy. I'm not that belligerent. I think any belligerent side to my personality comes out in the poetry, perhaps. Well, yeah, some of the poems no, are angry, no? Would you say they were angry? I don't know if they're angry, but no, they seem to anger. be confrontational. A little bit pissed off, confrontational, moaning about things. But, but hopefully in an entertaining way. I don't think there's any danger of me ever becoming a moral force in the world. I don't think it's too late. <laughs> Not if my poetry is anything to go by. <laughs> so what, what motivates you to write this poem? That is a, a very intelligent question and uh, motivation, really. I guess what you mean by motivation is uh, inspiration, isn't it? You know, uh, which I've never really held great, great stuff. I think it's a kind of the, the myth of the... Uh, so it's a romantic myth of the uh, the poets being hit by inspiration and uh, everything coming out as a piece. But it's it's 
bit more prosaic than that. I mean, it's uh, there's a right way and a wrong way, especially as I say, you know, I write very metric and rigid rhyme schemes. Uh, so there's a right way and a wrong way. So really, inspiration doesn't come into it. It's more perspiration, as they say. As I say, some poems write themselves, but you've just got to keep working like a... Treat it like a job. You're very or, famous. Uh, but I'm not issue-led or anything like that, so it's all about style, you know. I mean, I can write about anything. A chair, and hopefully it will finish up about more than a chair. Or a vacuum cleaner. Oh, yeah, or a vacuum, yes, indeed. I, I want to be yours, yeah. My wife yeah, good, read, a, a good, I want to be yours at a wedding recently. Do you know, it's the, it's, wedding, it's the wedding favourite of the 21st century, no doubt about it. She didn't get a the single number of, laugh. Every, every show I do, actually, every show that I do, uh, somebody makes the, makes uh, lets me know that, that it was used at their wedding, you know. That, do you think these people read it as well as you do? Yeah, I'll tell you who does it better than me, Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys. He converted it into a song and uh, with his prodigious mezzo-baritone turned it into a thing of great beauty. So but, I'm very grateful to Alex for that. Also, you know, I suppose that has put it into the public's uh, consciousness and that's why it has become the uh, wedding favourite of the... Uh, 21st century. Anything, you... anything I can do to expand the world of romance and true love, then uh, colour me happy. Well, you're also expanding the world of education and knowledge. You're part of the oh, I wouldn't national go curriculum. That <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah, there is that. Uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to, for that, actually, because, because of that, you know, uh, a whole new generation of people became uh, introduced, were introduced to, to my work. And uh, you can see it in the audiences. I mean, I have, I'm in the enviable position of having a, a completely pan-generational fan base from 14 to 89. You've... Sometimes it's the kids dragging the parents along and sometimes it's the parents dragging the kids along, you know, but one way or another... You've attracted a lot of nicknames. <laughs> Have I really? Just a couple of the People's Poet, the Bard of Salford. I, I can dig that, the People's Poet, yeah. Which one are you? I like the People's Poet, that'll do me. What, and the Punk Poet, that's understandable, seeing as I was brought to the, you know, the attention of the public via the punk rock craze of the late 70s, so that's understandable, I don't mind that. Do you feel nostalgic for the past? The All punk, sorts of things, yeah, what, not really punk rock I wouldn't say I was nostalgic for although it had its moments you know do you feel uh, nostalgic for Salford where you grew up no not really uh, I mean the part of Salford where I grew up has been completely redeveloped in fact I've lived in Essex for far longer than I've lived in I ever lived in Manchester but do you feel that you're from Essex I, yeah I do now yeah that's where my family is and yeah very much so <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that, um, there's a lot of stuff about how you, you used to be sort of gobbed on it Gigs and well, that didn't last very long, otherwise I'd have got out of the business. I mean, unlike all those other punks, you know, because when I got into punk rock, I was working in the... I was trying to make it in show business in the uh, in the world of cabaret in Manchester, which was, a, you know, it was like second only to the West End of London uh, at the time, in the mid-70s. Given that I was trying to make it in this uh, incongruous world, as far as poetry is concerned, you know, there weren't any other poets on that circuit. But I was trying to sort of fit in, so uh, 
because what I did was so unusual, I wanted to look sort of like a normal kind of nightclub performer. I had very short hair, you know, kind of a feathered sort of suede head haircut, and I used to wear uh, two-piece suits, you know, moddy kind of suits. And that just happened to sort of chime in with the punk look, you know. Uh, I, I didn't wear flared trousers and I had short hair. So, you know what I mean? Which was very unusual for a chap of my age at that time when, you know, even your kind of dad was wearing flares and... <laughs> in those early days. Shirts, you know what I mean? So yeah. I kind of fit in with that whole punk thing. Uh, but given that I was wearing suits... Very often suits that I hadn't even finished paying for, you know, I would get them on the weekly, you know, and things like that. I'd invested quite a lot into the the wardrobe of this uh, this uh, club performer. You know, I had a very strong image of what I ought to look like, sort of a bit, a bit Lenny Bruce, sharp suit, you know, as opposed to a floppy, hippie, flowery-shirted, effete type. I wanted to seem like, you know, an urban person, you know what I mean? A sophisticated guy who happens to write poetry. Do you know what I, I mean? I think you succeeded. So, I think I did. Thanks. Thank um, you. So, uh, so I didn't relish the, uh, the... I didn't relish being spat up on by uh, these uh, punks. Thankfully, Just you for know, those that who was don't a craze. know, that was a craze that didn't yeah, last. See, what was this? Why? Why were you? Why were they gobbing? For those who don't, they did it to everybody. It wasn't. Don't get. It wasn't just me. It wasn't a reaction <laughs> to your own work. It wasn't just me. No, it happened to everybody. They, it, it was kind of somebody put it about. It was a kind of compliment. Because the thing about punk was, it was like the, It was the world turned upside down. So anything that would have been an insult last, you know, a month ago became a, a compliment. So spitting was a mark of affection and swearing at people, you know, was a mark of respect. <laughs> You'd have to have been there to understand. But it was a, a particularly uh, disgusting uh, phenomenon, the, the old spitting routine, which the, the, the American vi- visitors, uh, you know, the Ramones, Richard Helen, the Voidoids, and all those people, uh, Rich, uh, Johnny Thunders. That was my favourite part of the punk thing, really. I used to love all that CBGB's axis, you know. Uh, it was proper rock and roll as far as I was concerned. It was, again, that was like, like the way I was with poetry. It was a return to core values. I, I saw that's how I saw punk. It wasn't a kind of new kind of music. All the shit that went before punk was a new kind of music. You know, Pink Floyd, Genesis, these you know million dollar bands. That was a new kind of music. You know, and rock and roll had just got lost in the process. So when uh, when I heard the Ramones, I just thought, wow, you know what I mean? This is like the Beach Boys all over again. And I used to go and see those bands very early doors, you know, Patti Smith, Johnny Thunders, the Ramones. Was it easy to keep the faith in in those early days before you became the national treasure that you are today? (laughs) National treasure. Uh, Was it easy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was was doors opened for me in that world uh, where they didn't exist, uh, you know, like a month before uh, the clash of the Sex Pistols, you know. uh, You know, people uh, would stare at me in the street for simply wearing a suit. Unbelievable. 
Um, so I'm <clears throat> nostalgic. No, not really. I wouldn't say nostalgic for that. If I was nostalgic for any period at all, it would be for the uh, mid-60s, I guess, you know, when I was young. <laughs> not the, See, the, not is, the I heroin was, period. I was, I, no, no, I'm not nostalgic for that not a bit, no. I'm lucky to get out of that. That feeds in, obviously feeds into the title of this book, The Luckiest Guy Alive. Like you say, lucky to be alive. <laughs> well, I mean, there was also, you know, you brought brought up in poverty and... Uh, you suffered oh, from I wouldn't TB. have said poverty. I, I did have TB and, I, and uh, yeah, yeah, had a kind of sick childhood and things like that. But poverty, uh, I wouldn't really uh, put it that way. I mean, we weren't mega rich, but my dad was a skilled uh, worker, you know, he was an engineer. So we were kind of high-end working class, I suppose you would say. Were you a politically conscious family? My dad was in the Communist Party, but back then it was... It was, if you were a communist or a left wing, it was, it was just about money. You'll appreciate this being at the Financial Times. It was nothing to do with trying to make people better or uh, trying to legislate people, everybody into being a living saint. You know, it had nothing to do with sexism or any of those side issues. It was to do with living standards and money, more holidays, higher wages... And a, a national health service. That was about it, really. If you believed in those things, you were a communist. <laughs> but you know what I mean? You didn't have to get involved in any kind of wacko foreign policy or, you know, like, like you know, to, in order to be left-wing today, you have to sign up for all kinds of special pleading minority groups, don't you? You know, but back then it was just about money. Are you interested in politics today? <laughs> Uh, I'd like to say no, but you know, you're not fond of the bre- Brexit negotiations. me off in politics. Brexit, e- everything. I wouldn't put it down to Brexit. No, I'm ambivalent about about that. I didn't vote because you know, not really my world anymore. You know, I like the idea of being an independent country, but my daughter, you know. I mean, you know, uh, first of all, I was sick of the word. I used to see it in the Guardian, the front page of the Guardian in the shop. I don't buy the Guardian, but I used to, you know, sometimes I look at the headline to see what's worrying the chattering classes at the moment. So, and I used to see this word Brexit. I, used to, I mean, I'm pretty smart about words, but I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> what what does that? What is it? What are they talking about? You know, I, mean, I was, I well, was the no only, one knows. it was like I was the only person out of the loop. And then I put it together. I'm not. I'm not always very smart, so <laughs> I kind of put. Then I put. Oh, oh, they mean Britain's exit from the. You, you know what I mean? And Are you happy? I don't. I don't want to get into that. I'm. I'm not unhappy. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no. Why would I be unhappy about it? You know. But really, you know, it's, I'm not going to say whether I'm pro or anti. But personally speaking. My wife's French. Half of my daughter's relatives are French and live in France. So it's very much in my interests, in our family's interests, to be in the EU. On the other hand, you know, it has its disadvantages and and it and and the free movement of labour impacts badly on the poorest members of our society. I will say that. In the great pantheon. Is that going to get me in any kind of trouble? I don't want to. I hope so. I yeah. mean, if I get trolled, it, what what difference does it make? I haven't got a fucking mobile phone. You know what I mean? They're just no, shouting yeah. into the distance. So if you don't like it, 
Where do you see yourself <laughs> in the great pantheon of, of poets? Poets. My big uh, go-to guy, the, the guy that if I'm copying anybody, and I don't know much about it, but the, but the guy that put me on the path to becoming a, a professional poet, which nobody encouraged me to do, Obviously, you know, it's like, who's a professional poet? When I said, you know, what do you, you know, people just say, what do you want to do? Ultimately, I want to be a professional poet. I'm very good at it. Did so, your English you, teacher you know, it's my poet. only skill. But they were all like, well, you can't be a professional poet. Nobody's a professional poet. Philip Larkin, who was the most famous poet, poet at the time. Look at Philip Larkin. He's a, he's a famous poet, but he's a librarian. So he's not relying on poetry to make a living. So I'm like, yeah, 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 I think you can. Because I'd been reading about Charles Baudelaire and he was a guy that didn't do anything else. He was a citizen, you know what I mean? The citizen poet, just like I wanted to be, the sharp-dressed urban urbanite, the guy with his finger on the pulse, you know. He's going to say it on your behalf. Do you know what I'm saying? That, and that, that was, the, he was my, my only role model, really, was uh, the late Charles Baudelaire. The Baudelaire of Salford. Yeah, I would, I would like that. He gets a few mentions in the book. Everybody copies somebody, and uh, he's the guy for me. Where can we catch you live? Uh, well, that's a good question. I haven't got my date sheet in front of me, but I'm doing the uh, London Palladium on the 24th of November. Sold out? I think there's a few seats left. OK. Book early. I certainly shall. I was going to ask you, and you can just say no, but I was going to ask you to finish up with a joke. Oh, blimey. Uh, well, that's it, uh, yeah. I should have warned you. You, you should have done. I've got a million... Uh, if there's one. A, a million gags. Uh, oh, crikey. Uh, what was that latest one? Oh, yeah. I wonder why it, why it is that uh, so many uh, transvestites come from the northwest of England. Everyone I've ever met has a wig and a dress. <laughs> John, Does that translate into, yeah? Absolutely. Wig and a dress. And finally, John, could you just read us your poem, Shave Off? Shave off, for obvious reasons. What would it take to shift you? A bloodstained banana, a Panama titver, a piece of an eyelid attached to a Britver. I'm not a fan of enforced euthanasia, but somebody taser the chimp with the razor. He'll slit your throat just by acting the goat. Please, somebody taser the chimp with the razor. You'll never outrun a guy with a gun. You'll never outlive a man with a shiv. A girl with a rifle is never a trifle. Don't clock the wife of a man with a knife and don't pull a blade, he may have a grenade. Try not to sneer at a girl with a spear. To be hit with a club will be nothing but trouble. Call that trouble, I don't want to phase you, but somebody taser the chimp with the razor. Don't cramp the style of a neighbourly smile And sure and be gorra now, don't be a schnorrer How are things in old Schlockamora? OK now, check me tomorrow Don't put the heat on the man in the street Don't put the hurt on a treacherous skirt Your limitless tears could be flowing for years You may live to regret that preposterous pet Please, somebody taser the chimp with the razor You cannot relax with a man with an axe And he's nursing a grudge and he's packing a bludgeon You wouldn't pull rank on a girl in a tank any more than you'd jump on a guy with a pump. Never head butter, certified nutter, with 
needles and fish hooks encased in his schmutzer. A girl with a sword should not be ignored. Won't somebody taser the chimp with the razor? You better not bitch slap a chap with a switch. It will not wash, carry a cosh. Even then he may have a sten gun. You don't want to hammer a man with a camera. You would be liable, it's undeniable. Try not to flannel a man on a camel. Who needs a simits around their perimeter? Don't give a snake an even break if you see an adder get up a ladder most things in existence are prone to resistance but sometimes not like this one for instance a chimpanzee is not just for christmas that sense of parting looks quite the business drape that ape in your old school blazer then somebody taser the chimp with the razor john cooper clark thank you so much for coming on the podcast pleasure John Cooper-Clark tours permanently. You can catch him definitely at the London Palladium on Saturday, November the 24th, but unquestionably he'll be at a venue near you very soon. And The Big Lebowski is still available, always available, and has been for 20 years. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you at facebook.com, everything else podcast, or everything else at ft.com. And as ever, if you like what you hear, please, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. They do make a difference. Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres. We've been Grizz and Al, and our music is composed by Fat. I was going to do that line. <laughs> Would you have been annoyed? <laughs> yes.